So we are in a series all about red flags in relationships and how to spot them, how to deal with them. And last week I gave you 25 red flags for the singles in the room. Singles make some noise this morning. Come on, if you missed last week, go and watch it, share it with a friend. Um, I gave you 25 things to look out for when you're dating someone. And it doesn't mean that you break off the relationship, it just means you have a conversation before there's an incarceration. You talk about it, you deal with it. If there's smoke, don't wait for the fire, right? Uh, deal with those red flags. So what is a red flag? A red flag is a sign of danger. If you've ever watched auto racing, when they wave the red flag, it's not a sign to speed up, it's actually a sign that the race needs to stop because there's dangerous conditions on the track. If you've gone to the ocean and wanted to swim on a, uh, out at a beach, um, if there's a red flag on the beach, it means the water conditions are scary, they're dangerous. Don't get in the water, there's undercurrents that you can't see. If it's a double red flag on the beach, it means the beach is shut down for that moment. It doesn't mean it's shut down forever, it just means until conditions get safer and better, don't go out in the water. And in the same way, God gives us red flags, warning signs in relationships. Even even in marriage. And so today I want to title this sermon, the state of the union, because I am preaching on the union today and I'm going to give a state of the union address to all you married people in the room. I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to anyone out there who is married, watching online. And so this is going to be a message that I am going to ask all of us to listen, to watch, to lean in with a heart of humility, because how many of y'all know God's not finished with you yet? Come on, that means that God's still working on us. So if you have a Bible, go to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, verse 12. Yeah, you can make some noise. And uh, the Bible says that the prudent, the wise man, the wise woman sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple, the foolish man, the foolish girl keeps going and pays the penalty. Now, we have done, I feel like one of the best times to do this is when you're dating someone, to look for those little red flags, to say, you know, I'm sensing something's off. I'm kind of feeling like there, there could be some danger here. You keep talking about wanting to kill your parents. I don't think that's a good idea. That sounds like a red flag. We need to take refuge here. Or, you know, uh, there, there's little things that pop up when you're dating. But when the wedding comes around, how many of y'all remember your wedding day? Come on, on that wedding day, the music is playing, the bride is coming down the aisle, you are just goo-goo eyes, you're crying, you're looking at each other, you're saying the vows, you're celebrating that moment, and then all of a sudden, the wedding is over. And now in marriage, you've gotta live with this person the rest of your life, right? You've, gotta, you've now made the commitment till death do us part, and you are in that thing, and you're starting to sense some stuff. What do you do when you're married to someone, you've already said I do, and all of a sudden you start to feel some red flags. And I feel like anytime a preacher preaches on relationships, the ladies are like excited. The ladies are like, this is good, we need this. We need to talk about marriage. And the men are like, I was just starting to like this guy. And now he's gotta talk about this, come on somebody. But this is a time for us to pay attention to what God wants to say. Um, the Bible says in John chapter eight, verse 44, that the, the devil is the father of lies. He is a, de he is a deceiver. Um, that we are children of God, but the devil seeks to deceive. He seeks to lie. He seeks to trap people in a place of self-deception. And deception is at an all-time high when people will not face the truth, when people will not face the red flags that are popping up in marriage. I heard a story about this couple that uh, was having some issues, and they weren't getting along. They were arguing a lot. And so finally, the wife convinced the husband to go see a counselor. 
And they went to go see this older counselor, a man who was twice their age, and he had them sit down on the couch, and he said, well, talk to me about what's going on. And as soon as they started talking, it just turned into World War III. I mean, they started fighting. They were getting mad at each other, name-calling, screaming at each other. He never listened. She is just like her evil mother, right? You know, just saying some of these mean things, and the counselor's listening. And finally, the counselor just stops him. And he says, no, I need you to stand up, miss, and ask the wife to stand up. And he looked at the husband. He said, I want to show you something, sir. And he gave that wife a hug. He said, this is what your wife needs every single day. And the husband said, when do I bring her back tomorrow? In other words, he wanted the counselor to do the job for him. He didn't want to work on the marriage. Everybody say, it takes work. There is an attack on marriages right now. If I was to give a State of the Union address on marriages, I would say that the enemy is, is all out trying to bring an assault against the union, against the covenant between one man and one woman for life. There is, a, there is an attack. There's an onslaught. There's almost an assassination attempt against God's definition of marriage. And it is time for the church to fight back. It is time for the church to stand up and to speak truth. And the Bible says it is better to speak the truth in love. It is better to rebuke your friend than to show hidden love. Uh, so today is going to be just a kind, loving, gentle, convicting, challenging, truth-filled word. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Okay, I'm gonna give you 25 red flags for marriage. 25, you're like, oh my goodness, we're gonna be here for 25 hours. No, I'm gonna do it in 25 minutes and I am going to go through each of these red flags and then after those 25 minutes, I'm gonna wrap it up with a little final touch of what to do now. Number one, when there hasn't been any physical intimacy in a long, long time, Physical intimacy is so important for marriage. Now, when I'm listening to this sermon, when we're listening to any message here at Victory, we wanna have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive. I'm not listening to find out what's wrong with my spouse. I'm not watching to find out what's wrong with everybody else. I'm not feeling in my heart, you know, what I should judge someone else for. I am listening and I am seeing and I am feeling in my heart what God wants me to work on. Everybody say, it starts with you, boo. Yeah, you're talking to yourself. This is what God wants you to work on. What I, what I need to work on, I need ears to hear, eyes to see, heart to receive. Physical intimacy is so important in marriage. We, we, we've got to have this, right? There's got to be sex. There's got to be love. There's got to be a sense that, that there is a commitment to work together, to stay together, and to have that physical intimacy. Number two, when they stop apologizing for bad behavior, when he won't say, I'm sorry, when she won't say, I'm sorry, when it's, when it's now turned into, I'm just going to do it. This is just me. You're stuck with me now. You're stuck with this. This is as good as it gets. And when they stop apologizing for bad behavior, I'm not saying none of these red flags that I'm going to share today are a means for divorce. They are all a means for a conversation. They are all a means to say, hey, listen, we need to, we need to talk about this. Something's off. You used to apologize when you called me names, and for some reason, you're no longer saying sorry for this. 
what's going on? Is work become stressful? Is, is things happening in your life outside of our relationship that's caused you to be so rude and mean and not apologize? Again, none of these are means for divorce. It just means like we gotta talk about this. And today is a counseling session. If you thought you were gonna get out of counseling, you got trapped in church today. We're gonna have a marriage session today. Number three, when they pick and choose certain scriptures to fit what benefits them, even if it hurts you. Spiritual abuse is a big deal in the church. When people hit each other over the head with scriptures and with specific things, and yet they won't deal with the scriptures that confront their behavior. Uh, there was this man who came to my parents' house when I was younger, and, and I remember my mom telling this story. This man came to, um, they, he found my parents' house somehow, and this happened a lot growing up, and he shows up at the door, and he's knocking on the door, banging on the door. I need to speak to Pastor Billy Joe and Pastor Sharon immediately. Where are you? you know, and so my mom opens the door, and he says, you're, you're the one I need to talk to. And this man was mad. He was angry. And my mom, you know, kept the glass door closed. She said, yes. And the man said, I need you to tell my wife to submit to me. She won't submit to me. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that the wife must submit to the husband. And she won't submit to me. You need to call her up and tell her to submit to me. And my mom, you know, is keeping the glass door closed. And she said, well, Ephesians 5 also says that the husband is to love the wife and to treat her the way that Christ treats the church, laying his life down for her, sacrificing his will, sacrificing his way or the highway. And she said, the Bible also says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to love each other and to submit to God. And so the husband's, you know, just growling at my mom. My mom's trying to tell him, you have um, just done this little fast food scripture picking. You've said, I'll take the fries, leave out that. I'll take the burger, no lettuce. And, and she said, you can't do it like that. If you're going to pick a scripture, you got to pick the other scripture that confronts your behavior too. So she didn't call the woman and the man walked away. Praise God, we were delivered. But so many people, so many people will pick and choose the scriptures that only benefit their behavior and call out someone else's instead of the ones that also challenge themselves. Number four, when there are no boundaries with in-laws. Now, this is a big one. In order for a marriage to be healthy, there's got to be boundaries with the in-laws, right? If mother-in-law, mother-in-love is controlling the marriage, if father-in-law is controlling, if sister-in-law, brother-in-law, me and Ashley, we went to a marriage, um, pre-marriage class that was about 12 weeks here in the church called Before You Say I Do, taught by Carl and Charity Taylor. It was so good. And Carl and Charity, are they here? Are they in the house? They're probably gonna be in the 11 a.m., but Carl and Charity, they shared this story. They said when they first got married, they moved into an apartment um, on the second floor in, in Queens, New York, and um, they said on one side of their apart in their apartment complex on their floor, right next to them was his parents. On the other side, no joke, was her parents. They were literally in the apartment right between both of their parents. And then on that same floor was her brother, her sister, his brother, his sister. They were all married. And he said it was H-E double hockey. Like he said, it was bad. He said everyone was trying to control, weighing in on every disagreement. The in-laws were involved in every fight. They were controlling all our decisions. He said it wasn't until we moved out of that apartment complex that we were fully able to leave and cleave to each other to become one. I'm getting death stares from some of the people in the room, so I'm gonna keep going here. 
Hey, don't shoot the messenger, okay? I'm just preaching the Bible here. I love you. Number five, when they refuse to go get counseling, after there's been multiple conversations that this could be healthy and beneficial. Ashley and I have, since we've gotten married, we've gone and seen a counselor before. Not because our marriage was on the rocks, but because we wanted our marriage to get better. So we've gone to marriage conferences. We've sat down with some really good, healthy, Christian, uh, wise marriage counselors just to sharpen us, to make our skills better as a husband, as a wife. And the reason we've done this is because we heard from some really good pastors that we admire and we love and respect that are twice our age. They said, it is so good and beneficial to sit down with a counselor just to keep on sharpening your skills in marriage. So we thought that must be normal for healthy couples. That must be a humbling, normal thing. And we started to find out that people think if you went and saw a counselor, you must be thinking about divorce or something, like something's wrong with you. And that's just not the case. So I think getting a counsel, getting, getting counsel from someone, getting a counselor to weigh in in your marriage to help you continue to grow is a healthy, beneficial thing. Two people are saying amen, and they work for me on staff. Praise God. I love you. Thank you for being part of this staff. <laughs> Number six, when they stop wanting to be around family, friends, or any support system. So now it's the opposite. It's no longer that the, you know, the in-laws are over-involved. It's now I don't want any family members. I don't want anyone to be a part of our I don't want anyone to be connected. We're going to pull away from the connect group. We're going to pull away from any godly friends, any support system. This is a red flag. It's not a means of divorce. It's just, we need to talk about this. Why are we pushing away the people who love us? Why are we pushing away the people who care about us? Just because they called us out, just because they called you out on some bad behavior doesn't mean you need to push them out of your life. They actually love you. They're speaking the truth in love. Is there anyone in your life that cares enough about your marriage to call out things that aren't good in the marriage. Come on, Jesus. I am preaching this morning. Number seven, when they stop serving and they start worshiping the narcissistic trinity, me, myself, and I. Now, I shared this last week for singles, but this happens in marriage too. In fact, the Bible says the only way a marriage can stay intact is when there is a servant's heart flowing down from the head of the home, that the husband is, is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. So the serving has to flow from the head down. There has to be a desire to serve your spouse. There's a great quote that I've heard that the greatest marriages are two servants in love. The greatest marriages, the marriages that bring God the most glory are two servants in love. Philippians 2, verse 2 through 4 says that we should seek to serve one another and lay aside selfish ambition and put on the mind of Christ, the servant leadership that flowed from Christ should flow in us. Number eight, when you stop making an effort to spend quality time together. When's the last time you went out on a date? Again, this is just a checkup to say, hey, do this. This is healthy. This week is Valentine's Day. Schedule a date. Put it on the calendar. I am helping you score some brownie points. Just put it on the calendar. Say, we are going to go out on a date. We're going to go eat at that Cracker Barrel or that Olive Garden place or Chili's or wherever you want to go. Pick a place. Go eat together. Go talk to each other. Spend quality time together. If you haven't had a little getaway in a really long time, schedule a little getaway. It doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. You know, Ash and I, we 
we've, we've driven down to Bartlesville for a getaway. We've driven down to uh, uh, Tahlequah. We've driven to Oklahoma City. We've done little getaways uh, within 15 minutes from our own house just to get away from the kids for a night and to spend some time together. Come on, somebody say amen in this house. Number nine, when one spouse wants to control everything. I'm in charge here. I make the decisions. I'm going to decide what's best for everything. You don't even get a, you know, you don't even get to say what you want. I'm going to decide what's best for our money, what's best for our kids, what's best for our house. I'm controlling every, I'm going to buy whatever I want to buy. You can't say nothing. I want to control when there's an OCD. It's got to be my way. We're all going to become vegans because I'm a vegan. So we're all going to be vegetarians now and we're all going to do this. And it's all got to be farm to table. And I'm deciding every single thing. And you can't even have a word in this marriage because I'm in charge of everything. Praise the Lord. We're going to cast out some demons today in Jesus name. Number 10, when the daily tone changes to increase complaining, sarcasm, put downs and name calling. This is not healthy. If you were raised in a home and you thought this was normal because you watched your mom and dad just call each other names, put each other down, be sarcastic on a constant basis. And you think, Paul, that's just normal. That's how marriage is supposed to be. That's what God instituted is, you know, we're just going to be rude to each other, sarcastic. We're going to put each other down. That's not God's will. That's not helping your spouse, putting them down. Some people think that this kind of talking actually motivates their spouse to get better. It doesn't. It doesn't motivate your spouse to want to serve you more. I played for a football uh, coach that was a volunteer coach. He was a parent of one of the players, and I was in seventh grade. And um, this guy, he wasn't hired by our, our, our staff here. He, he just showed up at every practice, and his language was like this. He was constantly sarcastic. He was name-calling. He was putting people down. And he thought he was motivating all of us seventh-grade boys to play more. He was making kids want to quit, like not want to show up anymore. And it was bothering me. I hated going to practice because of this guy. He kept saying, my grandma runs faster than you, you little sissy. Come on, get out out there and run fast. And I was like, I want to quit football. <laughs> Y'all are like, you need to grow up. But listen, the way he was talking to us 13-year-olds, he was putting us down on a constant. There was no encouragement. There was no sandwich method. Like it was just straight sarcasm, put downs and name calling. And that does not motivate anyone to want to become better. If it motivates you to become better, good for you. But don't pass it on to the next generation. Don't call them a bunch of names and put them down. Because again, that doesn't create healthy homes. It creates bullies. And bullies are not good. Praise the Lord. All right. Number 11, when they go out all the time without you, I'm going out, go play some pool. Can I come? No, just me. Next night I'm going out. Can go play some golf. Can I come? No, just me. I'm gonna go play some bowling now. Do you play bowling? <laughs> I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, go to the gym. You can't come. And it's every single night, seven nights a week, they're going out without you. That's not okay. You need to spend some time together. Invite each other to be a part of some of those activities. And, and I'm not saying that those activities are bad. I'm just saying if every single night he's going out or she's going out without you, have a conversation. Say, hey, what's going on? How come I'm not invited to any of these hangouts that you keep going on on a daily basis? Number 12, when they become very angry about little things and there's a constant short fuse. Now, anger is a huge deal. 
Anger is a huge deal right now. In fact, um, people are saying that there are more, uh, there's, there's a higher increase of anger in our nation than there ever has been before. There's this intensity to get offended over every little thing and to make people apologize over every petty little thing. Is anyone getting tired of just the intense, petty little offenses that are spreading on a daily basis and you're watching it on the news and you're like, come on, guys, let's... Okay, three of us. <laughs> um, if you are someone that gets offended over every little thing and you get very angry, you just lose it. You just lose it. Like you start throwing stuff, punching the wall, and, and all they did was move your pillow six inches. And you, you're, gonna, you're gonna throw the lamp down because they put your socks in the wrong drawer. Uh, but when, when little things become a constant irritation, have a conversation before there's an incarceration. Number 12, when, or 13, when blaming becomes the regular response for all bad behavior. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else. This is what happened in the very beginning. In Genesis, God created the marriage before sin showed up. He created Adam and Eve. He called them to come together. Marriage was God's idea before there was ever any darkness or any sin. And then the serpent crept in and the serpent deceived Eve and then through Eve, Adam. And then when God shows up and says, what happened? Adam says, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was her. It's not my fault. It's her fault. And she goes, it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's the, it's the snake's fault. It's the dog's fault. If we didn't have these dogs, I wouldn't be like this. You got those dogs. It's the dog's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the church's fault. It's Pastor Paul's fault. He's talking about red flags. It's all his fault. When are we going to start taking responsibility for our own bad behavior and stop blaming it on the dogs and the cats and the pastor and the church and the boss and the person who cuts you off in traffic? When are we going to take responsibility for our own actions and language? Number 14, when they refuse to communicate. I don't want to talk about it. We're not going to talk about that. Grew up in a house. We don't, we don't talk about it. Military home. We don't talk about it. You don't talk about feelings. You don't feel. You don't talk. You don't touch. You don't trust. You don't do anything. We're just not going to talk about it. Just sweep it under. And it keeps bottling up on the inside of you. I heard this, this couple was sharing and the husband, he, he grew up in a military home where they just never talked about anything. They never, like feelings were not allowed to be talked about in his home. And so when he got married, it was the same way with him and his, his spouse. Never communicated about anything. So anytime there was a fight, we're just gonna move on. Put your smile on, we're going to church. Sweeping under the rug, we're not gonna talk about it. No communication. And it just kept bottling up. And finally, the wife was about to have a divorce and he didn't even know it because she was so fed up that he would never communicate with her. And so she convinced him secretly to go and, uh, meet with this older couple. He didn't realize it was a counseling session. She, she kind of got him to go there. And in the counseling session, you know, she, he was already there. Um, the older couple starts opening up to this younger couple. They had been married 15 years and they were in their, their 40s and, and uh, had, you know, got married when they were 25. And, and so um, long story short, in the conversation, the, the husband all of a sudden starts to admit you know, in my home, we just never communicated. We just, we, we stonewalled. We just were silent. We never talked about it. We didn't feel, we didn't talk. And, and the counselor said, don't you realize that communication ends frustration? Where, when communication begins, frustration ends. You've got to talk about these things. And so after that counseling session, they had their first fight in 15 years. And the wife said, that fight was the greatest thing that could have happened in our marriage. 
It was the fight that saved our marriage. We had not had a fight in 15 years, and we prided ourselves in that at church, that we've never fought. And yet it was the toxic thing that was killing all the things that we had walked through. So again, communication is not from the devil. It is God's invention to help resolve negative feelings and conflict in the marriage. Communication is not a bad thing. It's a healthy thing. Okay, number 15, when you make excuses to avoid going home. Now, I, I have three little boys right now. I have a 10-month-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old. He just turned five last month. And we have two dogs. And our house is loud, and it is rowdy, and it is, it, you, there was a season, before the kids showed up, it was such a safe haven. It was so peaceful, it was like so easy to relax. And with the kids, it's a beautiful thing. God's just continued to change my heart in such a beautiful way to embrace this new season. But there are times where I drive home, and I park in the driveway, and I have to just sit there for a minute to prepare myself to walk in that house and I'm like, all right, here we go. You got this. Let's do this. I got to give myself a little pep talk. And then I go in there. It's all good. The kids are, you know, yeah, daddy. They start kicking me and jumping and the dogs are barking and Ashley's asking me to fix things around. All right, here we go. Let's do this. But again, I need to be home. It's healthy for me to be home. The kids need me home. My wife needs me home. I've got to get home. If you're in a season right now where you keep wanting to work and you keep wanting to do stuff, anything to keep you from going home, just deal with that red flag. Say, you know, I got to, I got to crucify that need to constantly be away from my family, from my kids. I've got to make a decision to start going home. It's healthy for me. It's healthy for the family. Number 16, when there's unrealistic expectations and extreme demands on a regular basis, I was listening to a, a researcher on marriage, and he's been researching marriage for decades. And he said, the history of marriage began in the earliest accounts of marriage, like not just Adam and Eve, but in the earliest, in the Old Testament, and even flowing into AD, the, 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 the first centuries after Christ had risen from the grave. Marriage was a lot easier back then. Marriage was a lot easier because a village was responsible for meeting the emotional and physical and many needs of individuals. So they would be married, but they still had a lot of people to help meet their needs. And there was no technology to drive this need to be like every other couple that they see on TV or to demand your husband to have the abs of Brad Pitt and your wife to have you know the looks of, of whatever girl that you think is hot out there or the personality of so-and-so. There wasn't these intense, unrealistic expectations. There was a sense that, hey, we're all good. But what we've done today is we've taken what a village used to do for one person and we've delegated the village's responsibility on our husband, on our wife. Now they're responsible to meet all of my needs. They, they have to meet every expectation I have. And if they don't, they're not a good husband, not a good wife. We've gotta stop putting that much pressure on a spouse to be our savior. Jesus is supposed to be your savior, not your husband, not your wife. So let's stop demanding such intense, extreme. And you might need to sit down and say, what is... The boundary line. What is the line between what should be expected and what's unrealistic for my spouse to fulfill in my life? Number 17, when spending time with and loving the kids becomes more important than spending time with and loving your spouse. Ash and I are, are taking a class and, and uh, you know, I grew up watching people take this class and I recognized the families that really followed what this class asked of people. It's called Growing Kids God's Way. We've got it right here in our church if you wanna do it. But one of the most important principles of 
this class that they teach is your kids have to see mommy and daddy spending time together. In order to have a healthy home, the kids have to see that, that mommy puts daddy in front of the kids and daddy puts mommy in front of the kids. That there is a sense of priority that the spouse is more important than the children. And you might think, well, Paul, I just don't think that's true. You know, kids are more important than spending time with my spouse. The kids need to see a healthy marriage growing up. So if you are married, take that commitment to say, you know, we need to start spending more time together and stop putting the kids in front of our relationship. Number 18, when technology takes over all the time. Technology has become the other woman. It's the affair. And it's not that you're talking to someone it's that you're so glued to that TV, that iPhone, whatever it is that has substituted intimacy in the marriage. It's getting quiet in this charismatic church, and I am preaching to me, y'all. This is something, how many of y'all can keep growing in some of these areas? How many of y'all would say, God's not finished with you yet? Okay, good, good. You're not alone. We're all there together. Ashley and I have to continue to check each other on this because we'll go on dates and, you know, we've made a commitment when we're on a date, we're not going to be on our phones. We're going to be looking at each other, but we'll take little breaks every 30, 40 minutes for her to check in with the babysitter and make sure the kids are okay. When she does, you know, I may look at my phone to answer any text messages, but as soon as that little break is over, we're right back glued, talking to each other, looking at each other. And if there's nothing to talk about, then we're just going to look at each other and we're just going to look at each other eating and we're going to think of something to talk talk about. But don't let technology take over the marriage. Don't let technology take over your house. Number 19, when they stop wanting to grow in their walk with God. I want the keys to come out. When there is no desire to grow spiritually, this is a red flag. The Bible says that we are to crave the pure milk of God. If you are bored with Christ and bored with church, it is not God's fault. If you've lost your spiritual hunger and passion, it's not my fault. Now, I have a responsibility every week to bring the word of God and to bring what God's calling me to preach, but you have a responsibility to stir up your hunger. You have a responsibility to feed on the word of God during the week, and we've given you a lot of great tools. The Victory app is free for any smartphone out there. And if you don't have a smartphone, stop by our bookstore. We give people a Bible for free here. If you don't have a Bible, we will give you a Bible. And, and if you're here today and you don't have a Bible reading plan, we will give you a physical copy of our Bible reading plan, or you can get it on your app. But stir up your hunger to grow in God. You say, what's that gonna do in my marriage? It's gonna do so much more than you realize. I know this, I cannot be a good husband without God. I cannot be a good dad without God. The marriage was never meant to be between two people. It was meant to be between three. The husband, the wife, and God at the center. God wants to be in the center of your marriage. He wants to help you. He wants to lead you. And with God comes the whole package, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You get the whole Trinity. The Holy Spirit starts helping you with the fruit of the Spirit. I want to grow in my walk with God so that I can grow as a husband to my wife, so that I can become the man that she needs me to be, so that she can become the wife that God's called her to be. There's got to be a continual pursuit after God. Number 20, when being independent becomes a constant fantasy and desire. I miss the old days when I could do whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it, however I wanted to do it. Nobody, I didn't have to check in with anybody. If you miss those, why'd you get married? If you loved that single life so much, but now that you're married, 
Stop fantasizing about being single. Embrace this dependence on one another and on God. The married life cannot be healthy and good if a spouse is fantasizing about the idea of independence. And in society today, we have so many songs and, and glorification of independence. I'm independent, Miss Independent, so independent. He can't tell me what to do. I'm so independent, I'm so independent. I'm gonna, you know, I, like I'm just hearing so many songs about independent and I'm like, that's not God's will. And it's creeping into marriages in the church. And it's not healthy, it's not helpful. So again, we, we've gotta come back to, there is a calling to be dependent on God first and then on the spouse so the two can become one. Number 21, when they start talking about how their ex was. My ex treated me better than that. My ex bought me gifts all the time. My ex wrote me letters. My ex was physical was intimate with me on a regular, like if you keep talking about your ex, this is a red flag in marriage. It's not helping your spouse. It's not motivating your spouse. It's hurting them. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be confronted. It needs to be crucified and buried. And if you are still talking to your ex and not for child support, if you are still in touch with your ex on Facebook and you're having conversations, Cut it off in Jesus' name. You say, Paul, it's not gonna hurt. A little conversation never hurt anyone. We're just, we're just, it's just a little bit of flirting. I mean, they do it in Hollywood. This ain't Hollywood. And Hollywood is absolutely not the place to find your marital advice. The Bible, the Word of God, the house of God, the people of God are the place that you need to seek advice on what a marriage should be like. Stop fantasizing about what your ex used to do for you, how your ex was. Am I being too honest on Sunday morning? I know this is real practical. I kind of moved from a preacher to a teacher this month. But number 22, when there is constant comparison of one another. Now this isn't about the ex. Now you're comparing them to how your dad was. My dad fixes everything. My dad was always there for me. My dad always took care of us. If you keep comparing your husband to your dad, you're not motivating your husband to become a better husband. You're just frustrating your husband. And then, men, if you keep comparing her to your mom. When Ashley and I got married in our first six months, we were uh, having a date night. She made for me some fried chicken. And she said, what do you think? And I made the mistake in that moment of thinking about the fried chicken my mom had made for me growing up. And my mom, she would deep fry that chicken. I mean, she would roll, she would get that chicken nice fried. Nice fried, <laughs> if that's even a term. <laughs> like, this dude needs to learn English. But, uh, you know, I said, well, this is good, you know, but my mom, and the second I said it, I knew I had just stepped into a landmine. I said, my mom made, made some really good fried chicken. This is really good chicken, honey. This is really good chicken. And she said, your mom, what? You know, we had a conversation. We had a conversation and we talked it out. And Ashley is a great cook. She's got a lot of meals that she can make really good. We, we, haven't, had, we haven't done fried chicken in a long time, but we've been eating lots of other good stuff. Some baked chicken, some pasta. I mean, Ashley is the greatest cook in the world, in my opinion. And, uh, and but when there's constant comparison, when you keep comparing your spouse to your mom, to your dad, or, or you keep comparing your spouse to how other couples are, if you were just more like the Kreskis, if you were more like 
if you were more like so-and-so, if you were just more like Drew, then we'd get along. If you were more like John, if you were more like, you know, Dr. Demuth, and, and if you were more like so-and-so, then we would have peace. If you were more like Jim and Bambi, we'd get along with each other. If you guys, if you just acted sweet like so-and-so, every time you compare her to some other woman, you are driving a bigger wedge between you and her. And every time you compare him to some other guy that you're friends with, you are driving a greater wedge between you and him. And it is not healing the marriage. It is only hurting the marriage. When there, number 23, when there is spiteful decisions or purchases, and you know, you know that you've had conversations, don't buy that without talking to me. I'm so mad, I'm gonna go buy that motorcycle she said I can't buy. I'm gonna sell his boat. I'm gonna go buy that couch. I'm gonna get rid of the dogs. <laughs> I'm gonna... I'm gonna pull our kids out of that school. I'm gonna go do whatever I wanna do because I'm in charge, I'm so mad. When that starts going on, that's a red flag. You gotta deal with that. You gotta deal with, that's not healthy. That's not God's will. You say, well, Paul, what am I supposed to do when I feel like I'm so mad, I just wanna get even with them? I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give you the answer right after these next two points. Number 24, when he or she hasn't said I love you in a long time. There was a man in the church who, uh, he was upset and, and came to my dad and said, you know, my wife is just nagging me, nagging me, nagging me like a dripping faucet. Doesn't the Bible say it's better to live in a desert than live with someone who's constantly complaining? And my dad said, well, are you showing her love? Are you showing her kindness? Are you serving her? And uh, the man said, of course. My dad said, well, when's the last time you said I love you? He said, I said it on our wedding day. <laughs> well, when was the wedding day? 1996. You need to start saying, I love you on a regular basis. Well, I grew up in a home where we just didn't say that. We don't talk like that. that we don't do the feeling talk and we're not like affirming. You don't have to grow up in a house of affirmation to be a spouse that affirms. You don't have to grow up in a perfect house to be a better spouse. You don't have to grow up with a per like it doesn't have to be a generational blessing of loving people in order for you to start in this generation to start showing love verbally and physically and finding their love language. Number 25, when couples treat each other as common. This is the final one right here. I'm almost done. When couples treat each other as common. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus tells this story when he went to his hometown and Jesus had just got done doing so many miracles. I mean, he set a demon-possessed man free of over a thousand demons. And he healed a woman with the issue of blood and he had raised a girl back to life. Jesus was, this wasn't his first rodeo. When he got to his hometown, he had already seen so many miracles in other towns. But when he got there, they said, isn't this Joe's boy? Don't we know him? We watched him grow up in diapers. Who's this 30 year old trying to tell us something? We can't learn anything from this guy. And they treated Jesus as common. And the Bible says in Mark 6 verse 6 that Jesus could do very few miracles there because of the spirit of familiarity. Familiarity is killing marriages even more than adultery. Well, I just know her too well. I just know everything there is to know. And they just can't meet my needs. So I'm gonna find someone else. To, I'm just, she's common, he's common. The second you start treating your spouse as common is the second you suck out the air of faith and the air of hope. When there's no value, no appreciation, how do you expect miracles to happen? Bring back the value, bring back the appreciation, bring back 
to hope. Well, I just see everything that's wrong with him. That's because you've taken the magnifying glass and you've been looking for everything that's wrong. Seek and you shall find. But if you start seeking for the good things, you might find a few things. So now, what do we do? Now that we know the red flags, number one, start with yourself. I'm starting with the one in the mirror. Matthew 7 verse 1 says, do not judge. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye and miss the plank in your own eye. So I'm starting with me. Everybody say, start with yourself. Number two, address the mess. Address the mess. The mess won't disappear magically. You've got to address it. If there's smoke, don't wait for the fire. Deal with it. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says this is a spiritual war. So be strong because there's a demonic attack on the union. This is the state of the union address. Address the mess. Number three, repent for wrong doing nothing changes until you repent if you have been the person that has been doing things saying things feeling things uh, 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 stirring up things that I've been talking about take a take a posture of humility the Bible says resist the devil submit to God humble yourself and the devil will flee our greatest stance against the enemy is submission to God humbling ourselves repenting for wrongdoing repentance is not just saying I'm sorry it's changing on the inside saying Lord I'm gonna change the way I've been thinking talking feeling number four forgive the one who hurts you and forgiveness unlocks the future forgiveness unlocks his future forgiveness unlocks your future Forgiveness unlocks the future of the marriage. Paul, you don't know what they did. It was so bad. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their bad behavior. Forgiveness sets you free from bitterness. Forgiveness doesn't say that what you did is okay. It says, I'm not gonna let what you did keep me in a prison of resentment and bitterness and rotten, rottening on the inside of my bones. I'm gonna forgive. Number five, number five. Resolve negative feelings daily. Resolve negative feelings daily. If there's a tone, there's probably a stone. If you're sensing some negative feelings, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't take this posture of, we're not gonna talk about it. Deal with it. I heard Jimmy Evans say this, and he's a great uh, author on marriage. He said, great stores have a customer relations desk. When you go to a really good store, they have a customer relations counter. At Christmas time, I went and bought something for someone from Kohl's. And I was so thankful that Kohl's had a customer relations desk because I had to take it back and get a different size. And they, at the customer relations desk, they said, how can we help you? What can we do? They wanted to meet those needs. They wanted to impress me. They wanted to make sure that whatever it is that was wrong, they were gonna resolve it right then and there. Good marriages have a customer relations counter. Bring it into your marriage. Say, you know what? The customer relations counter is open and I care about serving you better. Let's resolve that situation. Let's deal with it. I am sorry. And what I've realized is the later it gets, the more humble I become. At 5 p.m., I am so upset, I am right. At 6 p.m., I'm like, well, maybe it's half my fault, half her fault. By 10 p.m., I'm like, it's all my fault. I'm so sorry, let's just go to sleep, please. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter four, that it is okay to get angry. Anger's gonna happen. That's a, that's a nice permission slip. It's okay to get angry. But don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't take anger into the next day. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Resolve those negative feelings that night. I'm so mad, just, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? All right, number six, I'm almost done here. Number six, commit to pursue each other with passion and have fun together. 
do something fun. Go on a date. Go on a little getaway. Commit to pursue each other again. Act like you're dating each other. Give each other a fresh start. Shake his hand. Shake her hand. Hey, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Ashley. Good to meet you. Let's, let's go on a date this week, right? Let's do something fun. There was a preacher in Texas, and he said our marriage was bad. Church had taken a front seat. Marriage had taken a back seat. We've been married for more than 20 years. And he said, I always went hunting every year. Hunting was like my little hobby, my getaway. And he said, my wife came to me and said, I want to go hunting with you. And he was a little scared because he was thinking, we're going to be alone in the woods with firearms. And she's mad at me. She's going to kill me. And she's going to say it was an accident, a hunting accident. And uh, he was like, I'm not taking her on this hunting trip. He called his buddies like, what should I do? And they said, just, just take her. Just, she's not going to kill you. Just take her. So he brought her and he said, that hunting trip saved our marriage. He said, I don't know why I hadn't done it sooner, but when we had fun together, he said, I had been holding on to that hobby away from my wife for more than 20 years. When I brought her into that hobby, it saved our marriage. Number seven, renew your vows. Let's do this right now. If you're married and you're willing to do this, will you stand to your feet, just the married people? And I want my wife to come and join me. We're gonna say our vows to each other today. If you're willing to do this, and if you're not, no worries, I'm not offended, don't feel bad, don't feel, you know, if you're in a season where you say, Paul, we just, we can't do that right now, but, but we're here, we're here, and that's a huge step. But I'm gonna start with the husbands. So husbands, look your wives in the eye. <laughs> And you say this, I, and you say your name, Paul, according to the word of God, commit myself fully to you, to love you, to honor you, and to cherish you always. From this night on, I will be a husband to you. I will bless you. I will pray for you. I vow to forsake all others and cling to you forever. You are my one, my only true love, and I will never leave you. And from this moment on, we shall be one. All right, now it's the wives' turn. Wives, say, I. Say your name. According to the word of God, to the word of God commit, myself fully to you, commit myself fully to you, to love you, to honor you, and submit myself to you. From this night on, I will be a wife to you, honoring you as the head of our home. I vow to forsake all others and cling to you forever. You are my one, my only true love. I will never leave you. And from this moment on, we shall be one. You may kiss your bride. All right, let's all stand up together. Love you, babe. Ash, will you stay up here with me? How many of y'all received that sermon? All right, well, you made it, you're through. You know, I wanna end with this before we dismiss, and I know we've gone a little later in the last two weeks, but I think it's healthy, it's helpful. Number eight, this is the final point right here. Make a commitment to pray together. Bring prayer into your marriage and invite heaven to invade your relationships.